Tonight I'd like to speak about the happiness of renunciation through the practice of the paramis. And before I get on with the particulars about renunciation and the paramis, I want to talk about why this is so important to us at this time. We've been immersed in this protective culture and community of the Dhamma here in our retreat, in this retreat setting, protected by our respect for one another, protected by the precepts that we've been taking so that we remind ourselves of that respect for one another. We're protected by the silence so that we're not just blurting out everything we feel. Heaven forbid, you know, what would that be like? We're protected by our shared vision and by this seclusion that we're somewhat secluded within ourselves with this support of being with one another and the incredible simplicity of our lives that we're here together not needing to cook or to um, you know, do any of those details that we have to attend to in our daily life. And of course we're also protected by the practice of mindful awareness, the main ingredient of our practice here, supported also by the practices of loving-kindness to soften and open our hearts, the practice of equanimity to establish some balance when we open to the suffering that's really, really difficult. All of this leading to a deepening of understanding, a deepening of wisdom, uh, that understanding of true nature that knows who we really are, or probably more pointedly, who we are not. And uh, so we know that for the world as well, when we know it for ourselves. So in a very deep way, there is this protection from ignorance that we are establishing, that we're maintaining, deepening here. But tomorrow, we go out into the greater community of our world, back to our families and our jobs and schools, studies, um, community ex- uh, experiences and responsibilities. And we really need to stay closely in touch with what's deep in our hearts. And that isn't so easy in the world out there. We need to stay closely in touch with our inner resources of awareness and all the skillful means that we have learned here to keep that awareness maintained and as continuous as we can, keeping the intention of non-harming by perhaps reminding ourselves of the precepts every day or uh, several times in the month, if we can do it alone or with a group. Remembering our innate inner gifts, that's so hard for all of us to do. But we've had more and more practice with it here and hopefully those grooves in the mind will be found more easily. Those pathways in the mind will be found more easily. Even though we will be immersed in the greater stream of the world, 
and it may feel like, as the Buddha said, we are swimming upstream when we understand the Dhamma in an ever-deepening way and we go out into the world. It feels like our path or the way of our life is flowing against the greater stream, the mainstream of society. And that's really how it is. We, we must really be in touch with our inner resources and our inner strength to stay on the path and to know what's really important to us, to keep touching into that. There's this ever-deepening understanding that we have come to see in our time here together. Uh, That understanding that we know without any doubt, and maybe we need to just touch into it more often, what leads to true happiness? What leads to suffering? And so when we keep in touch with that, we can take the right path as we come to those uh, forks in in the path. So we need to remember that often. Do our practice. Know that we really are safe when we do all of this. And we connect with others who do the same. Protect that Dhamma in our hearts. It's often said that If we protect the Dhamma, the Dhamma will protect us. And it comes very, very naturally. That will take us to the end of suffering, to the relinquishing of greed, hatred, and delusion, so that our minds have this purity and we work with that purity in the world. Sometimes we think that, how could I work in the world without anger, without attachment, then I would just be a blah, you know, I wouldn't be able to accomplish anything. But contrary to that, we would be, we could be very, very powerful. We could be very, very much more effective in the world. There are uh, energies such as compassion that does the work of facing suffering and really handling it, uh, doing what is needed to be done without anger for example. So how do we do all that in a culture, in a mainstream, where there is a lot said and done about the current idea of the pursuit of happiness, which usually involves getting and attaining and consuming, whether it's material goods, social status, or prestige. This is our great challenge that we can't ignore. We, we can't go back into life as I have done once and put up that same or a similar schedule on my wall and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit and walk and sit and walk and then have lunch. And um, th- We can't bring this retreat back into the world. We really have to bring the skills that we've learned here and use them in the busyness of our lives and even in the chaos of our lives, in the confusion of our lives. While some of this getting and attaining is, of course, for the benefit of all beings, not all of it is wholesome. We can see in our own hearts and minds the endless quest for gratification in various ways, wanting to be seen, wanting to be acknowledged, not just wanting material stuff, but 
um, all the various ways in our hearts and minds wanting to be right. We're so intimately involved and know for ourselves the power of this current, this pursuit. We are so affected by living in this consumer society that we need a lot of skills, we need a lot of self-reminders. We all know the power of craving, of clinging, as Joseph spoke about the other evening. When we are unconsciously influenced by it, it produces a constant inner agitation, a kind of existential inner turmoil that we continually live with. And this is what we feel when we sit here and sometimes we don't even know what's bothering us. You know, it doesn't seem to be connected to any story in our life. It's just this agitation that kind of low-level, under-the-radar, wanting, looking for gratification in all the wrong places. So this produces this kind of uh, turmoil in the present moment, and of course, it plants seeds for that to continue in the future because it continues out like a habit pattern, because it's never interrupted or seen for what it is. It plays out over and over and over again if it's unrecognized. The Buddha's teaching began because of his great compassion in seeing this, in seeing this kind of ignoring this level of, of our hearts and our minds. But here in this practice, we're paying more attention to it and not just clinging, but the opposite of it. There's wanting and then there's the not wanting. And I'm talking about what leads to unwholesome states of mind, to suffering in our lives. So this pursuit of happiness by means of this endless obsessive and uh, mind that keeps reaching out to experience pleasant, runaway, from experiencing the unpleasant. Instead of the pursuit of happiness, we come to see in our quiet time like this that we've really been in the pursuit of suffering and never really knew it until we looked more deeply. So our practice here is to investigate that, to investigate the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, and to relinquish its cause, as Joseph spoke about the other night, clinging, craving, attachment, all the various ways that is uh, described as leading to suffering. And we realize that the freedom of the mind that can come from the moment that clinging, attachment, is relinquished, in that moment, we feel the mind free and we realize the beauty and the peace and, the, and that incredible freedom that can come over and over and over again by doing our practice in this way. It's not just a mind freed from clinging, but it's the realization of the mind of non-clinging, the mind of non-aversion or non-hatred, 
the mind of non-delusion. And it feels the, the purity of this pure mind, the inherent purity of the mind, can be felt. So for most of us, or all of us, involved in the Dhamma, especially when we're given these protective conditions that we are here on retreat, we understand experientially the happiness that comes from this, that comes from letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion, this basic renunciation of greed, hatred, and delusion in all its different forms, especially the clinging to a sense of self. And so, even with this practice that we're doing, it's a very deep practice of renunciation. When mindfulness has gained a lot of momentum and is supported by other factors of mind, other strengths of the mind, like investigation, energy, calm, concentration, and equanimity, that uh, factor of mind, that mind of sati, or mindful awareness, becomes very, very powerful. Powerful beyond measure. We have sometimes no idea how powerful mindfulness can be. It is said that in a strong moment of mindful awareness, greed, hatred, and delusion cannot have a foothold in our minds. It cannot grip the mind. Because with strong mindfulness, wisdom arises in the mind. And it is that wisdom that sees things as they truly are. It sees things on every single level, on the pixelated level, as Steve talks about, and on the everyday level of existence, of course, which is easy to see. It sees everything as impermanent, as impersonal, and not leading to anything ultimately satisfying. So the mind, because of this wisdom, naturally lets go. And in those moments of that naturally letting go, again and again and again, the purity of the mind is experienced. When greed, hatred, and delusion are absent, our teacher Sayadaw Upandita calls this a mini-enlightenment, actually. And people have these many moments of insight where that is actually experienced, where there's no uh, clinging to anything, not even a sense of self. And that, again, that kind of purity, the, the cleanness of the mind is experienced. It can happen over and over and over again, many moments, one after the other, purifying the stream of consciousness. It can become a very wholesome habit of mind that the mind just does that of its own accord. And uh, there's not much effort that's needed for that to happen. That is why we always uh, encourage the practice of continuity of practice, because then that can be experienced. So mindful awareness, when it can be a habit pattern like that, I thought about 
after Steve's talk, how this can be the frequent flyer of the mind. You know, something that... <laughs> we're not exactly a card-carrying frequent flyer of the mind, but uh, silently we can understand the power of it. So in our own practice here, each one of us has seen that there can be a lightness, uh, an openness, a softness, yet clear acceptance with that inner honesty of how things are in every changing moment. And so this develops a very deep confidence and faith, not just in the Dhamma when we say, oh yeah, I heard that before, now I'm seeing that that's true. What I didn't understand before, now I understand it by experience. But more than that, we develop a confidence in our ability to do it because we've gone through so much. We've gone through the hell realms of our minds, so to speak, and parts of our hearts that we never thought would open. And we see them open, even if they're just eking open a little bit. And we see that there can be some confidence to take the next step, to do our practice in a way where we can stay quietly ardent about what what we do, how we do, in our intensive practice and in our daily life. So we open to the truth of how it is in this immeasurable way, whether it's painful or it's pleasurable, There's no getting stuck anywhere when this happens, when there is this very strong kind of continuity of mindfulness that carries its own momentum. And we've begun to see here, maybe it's just a tiny bit for some of us. Maybe it's been a lot for some of us. We see the delight in the mind that can face even what's difficult because of that confidence to open to it. Just remembering a time, just last year when I practiced with Seda Utejaniya, and um, reporting to him how it was so delightful to open to a suffering that I had never opened to before, open to some dukkha in the mind, some kind of turmoil in the heart that never before was seen in that particular way. And of course there was some little trepidation, but there was also after that an energy that could arise in the mind, the energy of delight and some kind of happiness that brought along with it some faith and some confidence that it's possible, it's really, really possible to open to anything and to not be so... Um, caught by it, that the energy or the balance can be more stabilized in mindfulness and wisdom rather than in the suffering. So that kind of happiness is about deeply trusting oneself and deeply trusting the truth that comes from one's own heart, the truth of how things are in very deep levels. There's a great security in that renunciation, even though it could be hard a lot of the times. There's a great security in knowing that the heart and mind 
can relinquish all forms of clinging or many forms of clinging and the opposite of aversion. And of course, with mindful awareness, that dispels delusion. From the Sutta Nipata, it says, I have seen the misery of attachment to pleasure and by extension, aversion to what is unpleasant. And then it goes on to say, I have seen security involved in renunciation. That kind of deep letting go. It's also said in the Dhammapada, if by giving up a lesser happiness, one gains a greater happiness, then a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. It's not about giving up pleasant experience. Basically, it's about letting go of any clinging to that pleasant experience. The greater happiness is a mind free of clinging. It can experience what is pleasant. It doesn't hold on to it. It can experience what is unpleasant, not push away from it, which is the other side of clinging. I remember once in recent times in Burma when I was practicing and I walked in to give my report to Sayadaw Upandita and I really wanted to go home and it was probably written all over my face and in my walk as I came up to be on the mat so I could do my bows to him. And as I uh, walked up in front of him and then did my bows, he started to recite this but I didn't know what he was reciting. It was in Pali. If by giving up a lesser happiness one gains a greater happiness, then a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. So I was thinking about the happiness of going home, of not finishing out my retreat, of having my own bed, and knowing what side of the bed to get off of to go to the bathroom. And my own teacup and all of those little pleasures of life. And when the nun who was translating his, that verse uh, in Pali said this, if by giving up a lesser happiness, then I knew exactly that he could see it written all over my face. And then indeed, after that, I reported, Say Daoji, I have giving up mind. Giving up mind is coming up now. And so, um, of course, you know, I stayed and followed through on my resolve. So, all that as the kind of background and basis to talk about renunciation, grounded in the practice of the paramis, those wholesome forces of mind that uh, naturally bring us to liberation, to that freedom from any kind of suffering. I've heard it said many times that in Burma, people there, those who can, not everyone of course, uh, will take some time off to do some personal retreat like we're doing here. But their standard is more like take one or two months off. That's how greatly and how much they value uh, this kind of practice. And then 
after doing their months of intensive retreat, they take the depth of what they have learned and bring it home into their daily life. And on purpose, practice the paramis, those wholesome forces of mind. Really make a resolve. They, do, they make a resolve to practice this at home. Be devoted to it, to a sincere taking up of practicing these wholesome states of mind, arousing them when they haven't been, when they haven't arisen yet in the mind. And when they have arisen, nourishing them uh, by giving attention to them and acting them out, uh, those wholesome states of mind. So they have a greater karmic force in the mind stream. And because at the same time, there is a natural renunciation of what their opposites are, and I'll name them in a moment. There's a natural letting go. Of, for example, the opposite of metta is of loving kindness is ill will or hatred. So in practicing loving kindness, we let go of ill will. We relinquish that. So as you go back into your everyday life, you may want to do the same to take up any one of these or uh, various of them and practice the paramis, these wholesome forces already in the mind, ready to be strengthened through the actual practice of them, the acting them out or the saying of them. It's said that the Buddha perfected them over eons of lifetimes. And that's why the paramis are translated sometimes as perfections. It also means noble becoming, noble becoming, or becoming noble. And I like that translation of it because it's rather daunting for me to perfect these paramis. It's just easier to think of them as just becoming more noble by practicing them, strengthening them in my life. So, for example, here are the ten paramis, and I'll post them later on um, on the board out there. I'll name them all, but I'll only talk about some of them tonight. We can work and cultivate them consciously at home, at the same time consciously giving up, renouncing something. So the first one is dana, or generosity. When we consciously cultivate that, we give up greed. The second one is sila, or morality. When we're conscious about living in harmony, we really give up harming others and harming our own hearts by doing that. We renounce uh, in the various ways that we uh, live the precepts in our life. We renounce greed, hatred, and delusion. And I'll talk about that a little more later. The third one is renunciation itself. And I'd like to pause here a moment to fill this one out more because it's the theme of, one of the themes of the talk. Renunciation is not so inviting to explore. That's why I coupled it with what one can gain, the paramis. In the Dhamma, um, everything 
that you read, everything that you do, everything experience that you have becomes a Dhamma understanding. And I came across this cartoon strip, Hagar the Horrible, that had some profound understanding in it. And I'd like to uh, give you a picture of that. There are four frames in this cartoon. And the first frame is one when Hagar the Horrible is climbing this very steep mountain and he's huffing and puffing to get up this mountain. In the second frame, he meets this very wise person with a long beard and is sitting cross-legged at the top of the mountain. And he says to this wise sage, Oh, great sage, please tell me the secret of happiness. And in the third frame, the sage says, Simplicity, self-restraint, renunciation. And lastly, in the fourth frame, Hagar says to him, Is there anybody else here that I can talk to? (laughs) We don't like this word, (laughs) renunciation. Um, I guess it's because we live in this society, this consumer society, and we're so used to the opposite of it. We don't want to give up our comforts, but that's not really what it's about. The Pali word for renunciation is nekama, and it really means to go forth. It's used to describe a person's going forth into the monastic life. When uh, into the monastic life might mean one may become a bhikkhu or a monk or a nun. Um, or with regards to us, we just come into retreat in this kind of renunciation where we come to this temporary monastery and we give up the complexity of our life and live more simply. The translation of the Pali word emphasizes what is gained rather than what is left behind in this going forth. And we all know we've left something beautiful behind our family, our friends, our homes. Of course, that's all still there, but there's, there has been so much that each one of us in our own different ways have gained, has gained from this. So, it's not really about deprivation or exterminating something that is greatly fulfilling to us, like family and friends, our homes, etc. It's really being honest about what doesn't truly fulfill us, what doesn't truly lead to happiness. We learn that more and more deeply by looking honestly at our hearts and our minds. What doesn't really lead to peace? We really have to open to that in the quiet, in the honesty, in the clarity of our hearts and minds. We're getting honest about what to let go of. Mostly has to do with the defilements. That is the happiness of renunciation. There's a deep resting in life when we feel that momentarily or for continuous moments at a time. 
there's a deep resting in the truth of how things are. We're not plagued by what is called the states of loss, the unwholesome states of mind. We're enjoying experiencing a mind that where there's an absence of greed. Sometimes, even in the Satipatthana Sutta, it talks about noticing the mind and when there's an absence of greed, when there's an absence of ill will, an absence of delusion. And there's deep, open-hearted wisdom that's happening during that time. So the rest of the list I'll continue with, briefly say what they are, but and at the end I'll talk more about a few of the areas. The fourth is panya, or wisdom itself. Simply said, the wisdom parami is gained by renouncing ignorance. And every moment of mindfulness is renouncing ignorance. The fifth is viriya, or energy. Balanced effort. I like to use the word balanced, so we're not doing it with such zeal that we uh, run out of energy or we're striving too much. When we let go of being too casual about our practice, maybe we let go of, we see some laziness about our practice or even about our responsibilities in life, then what we gain is that balanced effort. Kanti is the sixth one, which is patience. The Buddha says that patience is the supreme virtue. And our teachers would say that the path to liberation is paved with patience. Every step, every step is a patient step along the way. What we give up is being impatient. We give up having the arrogance of thinking that everything should revolve around my timetable. (laughs) With our practice, we learn that. With others, we learn that. The seventh is satcha, or truthfulness. And of course, this is giving up lying, giving up untruthfulness. And what we gain is really living in the truth. We gain the security, the deep inner security of knowing that because we live in the truth, by saying the truth, we will open to the truth. The eighth is aditana. It's the parami of resolution. It's the ability to resolve, to do what is onward leading in our spiritual life, in our home life, and to actually fulfill that. It's not the same as attachment. It doesn't have that unwholesome root. What I had to let go of in my own experience was a lack of confidence in myself to make a resolve, to fulfill a resolve. I had to let go of fear, let go of a weakness in the mind. The ninth is metta, or loving-kindness. And of course, this is letting go of ill will, of hatred, all its different forms. And the last is equanimity, upekka, letting go of reactivity. So they're all so interconnected. 
you really can't practice one without the support of many of the others. And I might not cover them all, but I'd like to take up various areas of them and uh, connect them in some way. The first is the area of dana or generosity, and I think that Steve spoke about it some already to you, and I may be repeating. It's always good to hear it again, though. The Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. And of course, again, it brings me to a memory of Manindra. His being with us for a few months and my being with him at different places um, gave me the benefit of having a lot of Dhamma stories about him. His his, uh, modeling of life was a Dhamma teaching to me. Sometimes he didn't say anything. It was just what he did. Or maybe he said something very little, but I got a lot out of that for a long, long time. And this was about the time he was recovering uh, from some surgery and illness. And I had to leave him home, alone. But I'd come home to see him. Um, Sometimes uh, in the afternoon, he might have eaten his lunch already. And I'd feel a little bit bad about having had to leave him at home. I had a job and always couldn't stay home. So I'd come home and I'd say, Muniji, how are you? You're so alone. I feel so bad about leaving you here, all alone. And he would say, oh, don't worry, don't worry. I'm never alone. I have the cats and the dogs and the insects in the house. (laughs) And I also have the devas, the celestial beings in the trees outside. I talk to them all the time. I'm never alone. And he said, even when I'm finished eating, I share my food with everyone. Even the cats, even the dog, even the insects, I put out little bits for them. And so I always wondered, you know, I realized after that we had a lot of cockroaches (laughs) during that time. But I, I did really get it, how he really got that teaching, you know, to share everything he had with others all the time. We'd be sitting at the table, and he would shove the food on the plate or even take it with his hand and shove the banana in your mouth, you know. He would want you to take it directly from him because the karmic result, it was better then, you know, because of the, the action of giving it directly. And um, just feeding everybody and giving what he could. He, he brought, I would take him to Long's drugstore, you know, and he would be so um, excited to go. Even after that particular operation, I thought he was just, I had the seat down and he was just, you know, really out, out of it with the, whatever he took to go through the surgery. And I said, Manindraji, I'm here at Long's. I'm going to get some medicine for you. And he got up from his seat and he said, Oh, shopping. <laughs> but what he wanted to shop for was gifts for, for all the children. You know, he was all the 
little children around in the, the kind of ghetto places of Calcutta. He brought them tons of umbrellas and um, vitamins and things that he could use and they could use. He would say, you know, that he shared things with others with great delight. Not because he was proud of it, but because the giving made him happy. And I could really see that he had little, but he gave a lot. In fact, you know, it said that the gift of the Dhamma is the greatest gift of all gifts. And so he gave a lot, a lot, a lot of that. Even when he wasn't well, he would say, come. He would be laying down on his, he'd be sick. And he'd say, come, I'll give you a teaching in the Dhamma. And um, just giving what he could all the time. So, it's said that the Buddha gave teachings gradually. And he would always start out with generosity because that was the beginning point of letting go. Letting go all along the way. It said that the Dhamma is beautiful in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. All along, we're learning how to let go. On the grossest form of clinging, we let go of stinginess and of greed, of course. We share our lives with others. There's a great happiness that comes from that. It brings in the quality of loving kindness. We feel that loving kindness in our hearts when we let go. We sometimes can feel maybe more the aspect of compassion when we offer something to someone that needs it at that moment. It might be a little time to listen. It might be an open heart. It might be just a little gift of um, helping them, bringing them some food. It's said also that the quality of equanimity is needed uh, when we practice dana because equanimity is there when we let go of what belongs to us, even if it's just our time, our energy. So to part with any of our resources, material, our energy, our time, it takes us letting go. Manindra would say, you must understand that dana has immediate benefits. The practice of generosity has immediate benefits and also far-reaching benefits. If you understand this, then you're practicing with wisdom, not just doing your practice willy-nilly. And of course, it is, it's good to be generous, but do we know its far-reaching benefits? The immediate benefit is, of course, it brings happiness in that moment to the recipient, and when we see that, it brings happiness to us. It brings happiness to us just to give. There's a cause and effect, karmic effect of giving. The result of generosity is a sense of well-being in oneself. We feel unease in navigating the material world. Sometimes generosity brings great wealth. Sometimes it just brings that kind of uh, resources that were, it's easy for us to live. My aunt would say, if you cast your bread upon the waters, you get a casserole. It's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> get back more than you give. 
over and over again. So the far-reaching benefit, and when we do it with wisdom, when we do this practice with wisdom, we're able to let go more and more and more in our life, in our practice, sitting on the cushion, letting go of that sense of self that's that you know so gripped around that. We let go of all the ways that really bring unhappiness to ourselves and to others. Let go on our deathbed. A lot of my practice now is very sincerely and pointedly about being able to let go on the deathbed. It's about, perhaps before then, final liberation, or at that time. Achan Shah says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. So I don't know about you, but I'm, that's what I'm going for. <laughs> so the mindful practice of generosity is no small thing. It's no small thing at all. That's why we really ask you to pay attention to the practice. <clears throat> really notice the mind before, during, and after. <clears throat> Nourish generosity if it's already there. The ultimate freedom gained from uh, this generosity is great, and there's freedom all along the way. So that's generosity and the uh, paramis that are related to it, metta and also uh, equanimity. Others as well, but I just pointed those out. So the next area is around sila, living in harmony, and what is gained by living with the precepts is living in harmony, and the beauty and the happiness and the peace that can come from that. What is given up, of course, is harming others. When we harm others, we harm ourselves as well. So as we age, and we all see for ourselves, and some of us more than others, as we get older, that the body starts to lose its shine. You know, the, the smoothness of the skin goes to wrinkles, and the, you know, the shininess of the skin goes to dryness, and the, the straightness of the spine is not so much there anymore, and old age is starting to creep in and all of how it affects the body. But the mind and the heart can become more shiny as we age, can become more beautiful. Even if our standards of beauty in the body we can't keep up with because of aging, but the mind and the heart can be beautiful and shine through a body that is not so young anymore. There's a beauty that doesn't depend on any of that. A beauty that doesn't depend on your status in the community, your <clears throat> how many initials you have after your name, mm -hmm. um, or before your name, <laughs> or um, how much money you have, of course, or what kind of car you drive. 
But the beauty that comes from having a clean heart, a heart where we truly have a reliance that we can depend on living within the precepts. So, I don't know about you, but for me too, I've been saying to myself, I've got to clean up my act a little more. I mean, every year I say that to myself and several times in the year and to make more of a conscious intention to do that. So it's said that the proximate causes for this careful attention around sila or around morality to arise, these proximate causes are known as the two guardians of the world. The two guardians of the world. And these guardians are someplace within each one of us. They're qualities within each human being. In Pali, the ancient language where the Buddha's teachings were recorded, those guardians and those words are called Hiri and Otapa. Hiri and Otapa. And they are the underpinnings of the precepts, really. The precepts of non-harming that we take. Uh, there's so many translations of Hiri and Otapa, and there's so many ways we can translate it in English, but I'd like to present it in this way. It, it's often translated, uh, Hiri is often translated as moral shame. Moral shame. Now, this isn't associated with self-aversion. This moral shame is an inner sense that our words and behavior don't feel right. You know, when, when we've said or done something wrong, we kind of shrink. And we kind of shrink. And there are moments when we look inward and we admit, oh, I didn't say that so well. Or I, I think I hurt somebody by my words or my behavior. It's an intuitive sense that we've been disrespectful to someone else. And maybe it isn't being shown, it isn't overt, but we feel that. And that moral shame also knows that we have hurt ourselves in the process. We've hurt our own hearts by the ingraining of that habit again. And we see the danger in it to ourselves. We begin to, that moral shame is beginning to respect our own integrity, respect our dignity. So one of our teachers in Burma called this moral shame really respect for oneself. And that, that's a beautiful way to say it. Because when we hurt others and we have this kind of shame, it's really a respect for oneself that we're looking out for. We're looking out for the preservation, the maintaining of our dignity and uh, that deep inner sense of goodness that we have. And the other otapa is called moral dread or moral fear. And I love the, the way that this other, this Abhidhamma teacher translated it really is respect for others. Because when we live by and we're aware of the um, rules of the community, the guidelines that 
our particular community is guided by, the standards. And we know that if we go against those standards, that it will harm someone, some way. Then we have this moral dread of kind of hurting others, not respecting others. It's said that a community is as fragile as one person's unconscious, unwholesome action or speech. And it may be surprising, but the Buddhist teachings encourage this kind of moral shame and dread with regard to wrongdoing. It doesn't mean that we have to wallow in guilt or in self-recrimination or despair, but just to um, take a look at one's heart when we know intuitively that we haven't said something in the right way or at the right time, uh, etc. So we don't have to make a monolith out of what we do wrong, but that's another sense of self we can get attached to, but to just reflect and see if the next time we can be more aware of what we say. So the gift that comes from this, what we gain from this is a fearlessness. People do not fear us when we go into any community. And we do not fear ourselves because we can fear ourselves because when we can't rely on our own hiriotapa, when we're not so aware of it, this respect for ourselves, respect for others, then we just say and do things out of habit. The forces of unwholesomeness really just can come out. So it's said that virtue or this kind of sila leads to the highest step by step, the Buddha says. Sila is a beautiful form of renunciation. When we refrain from acting out our ignorance, our just ignoring that that, uh, hiri otapa, then we feel a great sense of um, inner peace and the happiness that comes from that peace. When I make a prostration in front of a teacher or in front of the Buddha, when I bow, I'm really bowing to the great sila that that person is keeping and the great renunciation of refraining from acting out in any way, greed, hatred, and delusion, or at least giving it a good try. So that it says that the benefits are one who is virtuous comes into a large fortune. This is from the ancient scriptures. His or her name, fair name is spread. One enters an assembly with no fear. One dies unconfused and reappears in a happy destiny. So connected to sila, I want to highlight truthfulness. It's said that all the bodhisattvas, those who were developing the paramis uh, to become a Buddha, through their countless births, would break every single one of the precepts but would not break this one on truthfulness because it's so utterly important. It's said that we must really be truthful 
and be precisely truthful, not even, as the Buddha said to his son Rahula, not even to speak an untruth as a joke. Because how can we realize the truth if we can't uh, speak the truth? In a retreat in Australia that I went to, the very first long retreat I went to, there was a group of yogis reporting to Seda Upandita. And so I was in the group and I heard some of the reporting. Some of the reporting was about being able to stay with the breath continuously for a long, long time, or being mindful with no gaps. And this was just, you know, it, it wasn't believable at all, of course. And so, so Upandita said, really? Or is that really true? And, you know, people were saying that. Not many, but a few. So that night, he gave a Dhamma talk. And his Dhamma talk was about truthfulness. And he said that, how can you experience the truth if you can't speak the truth? Every one of you who hasn't spoken the truth to me precisely about your reporting in practice, I ask you for your own sake to line up next to my door and to let and to tell me that you haven't spoken the truth. And then to tell me what the truth is about your practice. He was that fierce about truthfulness. And so I did look back on was I really precise? Did I, really, I, didn't, I wasn't one of those who said I could be with the breath all the time. I just, I did say it was hard and fell asleep and things like that. <laughs> so I looked out the window where I was and saw that he, there was a line. <laughs> There was a line. So I did really, um, I, and always do really appreciate his attention to precision in so many ways. And that one I really, I would report to him to the minute how many, how much time I sat and how much time I walked. And I would really go over the exact words I had to use. Was it this or was it that? You know, to really be precise in my reporting to him and not go into anything extraneous. So another story that heightened my awareness of this came from a friend of mine who was doing her thesis, her doctoral on truthfulness and how it's important in the various cultural and religious traditions. And so this heightened my um, awareness of how to be with this. So there was a, the story goes, there's a man of an Eastern European culture and he was slandering the rabbi of his community. And one day he regretted this and so he went to the rabbi and he asked for forgiveness. And so the rabbi said, of course, I'll forgive you. And the man said, well, what is my penance? And the rabbi said, I want you to go and find a feather pillow and to slash the feather pillow and to go all about this town and this city and to strew uh, all the, the feathers around this place, to throw them all around. And the man said, oh, that's a pretty easy penance. Uh, okay, that's easy to do. I'll go do it. So he went and did that and he came back and he said, I completed my penance. I fulfilled my penance. And um, so 
he thought he was done with. And the rabbi said, oh no, that isn't the end of this penance. I want you now to go out to the community and collect every single feather and put it back in that pillow and bring the pillow back to me. Well, of course, this was impossible to do. And those feathers had flown to other nearby cities and whatnot. And so he got the lesson, you know, by saying something uh, untruthful, by slandering a person like that. This, you could, you could never collect all of that. You could never take it back. So, this is a, to understand that deeply is a very healthy kind of remorse that we can have and to make a deep intention and resolve to not do it again. So, resolution, the, the last one, the resolve. We all have to make a resolve to do what we need to do in life, to do our spiritual practice needs resolution, needs resolve. And um, with that can come energy, balanced energy, can come a great deal of renunciation, renouncing our feeling of weakness that we can't do it, our feeling of doubt in ourselves. It, it can renounce um, just greed, hatred, and delusion in and of itself. So resolve is a great uh, and very powerful parami that everyone, uh, developing every one of the paramis needs. It needs resolve. So how can we take this home with us? As um, the Buddha said in the Anguttara Nikaya, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? It's very important to make all of this part of our life. Resolve to practice in a way where it's onward leading, to let go, to renounce what leads to suffering for ourselves and for others, to see the gain of practicing the paramis, So there's a lot more to say about resolve, but I'll skip that and just end with <clears throat> this um, piece of beautiful advice that Seda Upandita gave at the end of that retreat in Australia that I went to, the first long month retreat about 30 years ago. He said, adorned with a garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living, dwell only in states of clarity. Great beauty results with integrity. Adorned with a fragrance of virtuous activity, for others a care and sensitivity, dwell only in states of contentment a heart removed of the thorns of resentment. Adorned with the sweetness of tranquility, 
soft rapture from a life of simplicity, dwell only in states of calm peace. Mental turbulence and distraction all cease. Dwell only in states of peace and happiness, a mind of wise discernment and openness. The three poisons of wrong view, conceit and craving no longer hinder or cause inner tightening. Vow deeply to develop the true way, adorned in the heart, then freedom will lay. So let's sit for a moment. Just a reminder, thank you for keeping the silence and please continue to keep the silence.